This morning I'm going to be talking about a very familiar text. It's a text that I alluded to last Sunday when I was preaching about the remarkable ironies of the cross. It's a text that uh, Frank Smith used when he was um, bringing our minds together around the table, the Lord's Supper. It's a text that's been called the golden text of the Bible. It's one of those texts that most people are familiar with. It's a text that perhaps if you are a student of God's Word, that it's the very first text that you have ever memorized. But it's a text that we have heard so often and maybe have said it so often that we sometimes lose the impact of it. So as I was sitting there collecting my thoughts the other day as we were preparing to take the Lord's Supper, I was thinking about the fact that it would probably be good for us to revisit John 3.16 and think about the things that are actually being said in this particular verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whomsoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What I want us to do this morning is very simply go through this verse phrase by phrase and make sure we get the full impact of what is being said here. Oftentimes when we hear a verse over and over again, we take a verse for granted. But this is a verse that we should never, ever take for granted because it is the golden text of the Bible. It's the Bible in a nutshell, if you will. It is God's scheme of redemption, all found in just a few words. And so I think it's very important that we revisit this text, that we put it back in our hearts and help us to appreciate what God has done for each and every one of us. So as we begin this morning, I want you to think about the very first phrase, for God. God. The verse needs to begin with God because without God, this verse would mean nothing. Uh, Without God, in fact, this life would mean nothing. Without God, then all of this would be nothing. It needs to begin with God because God is at the basis of what happens at this verse and God is at the basis of everything that happens in this universe. But when we're talking about God, we're not talking about some glorified man. We're not talking about some grandfather in the sky. We're not talking about some policeman that has been set aside to rule our lives. But instead, we're talking about a supernatural spirit being. Jesus describes him in John chapter 4 and verse 24 as being a spirit. He says, God is a spirit. So we need to understand and appreciate the fact that he is something that we really don't fully understand because we live in the material world and God is in the spiritual world. But we need to understand and appreciate the fact that the very reason why he is God is because he is something that has always existed and always will exist. But the thing I want you to think about first of all this morning is that he is our creator. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 reminds us in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. 
He is the one that has brought life to each and every one of us. He is the one that has put us on this earth. He is the one who has created this world that we live in, that we get to enjoy. He is God. And folks, we need to understand and appreciate the fact that He is real. The psalmist makes a very profound statement in Psalm chapter 14 and verse 1 when he says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. For someone to say there is no such thing as God, the Bible describes him as a fool. When you look at the world around us and when you see how it all works together, when you see how it's all in sync, how everything has a purpose and a plan, how nothing is accidental, it all goes according to synchronicity. To say that there's not a powerful force behind it is very foolish indeed. But when we think about this particular verse and we think about the God of this verse, the emphasis is on something else. As you go through the rest of the verse, you discover that there is something about this God and the God had to do what he did because of something else that God is. And that is, one day he's going to be our judge. Paul was preaching on Mars Hill there in Ephesus in Acts chapter 17 and verse 30. He says, I want everyone to know this. This is something that's very important. There was a time that God winked at the ignorance of man, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. And someone might ask the question. They didn't there, but he could, they could have asked the question to Paul. Why is it so important that mankind repent? Well, he tells us in the very next verse, in verse 31, where he says, For God hath appointed a day. God hath appointed a day in which he's going to judge the world in righteousness. So as we start looking at this verse and we start thinking about all the things that follow after this first phrase, we need to understand that God is not only our creator, not only did he put us on this earth, but one day God is going to be our judge. And that's why the rest of this verse carries with it such an impact on our hearts, knowing that one day we're going to have to stand before God. But as you look at the verse, and we don't have a lot of time today, so we can't spend a lot of time on every phrase Notice what it says next. For God so loved the world. Now make sure at the onset here that you understand that the world is not talking about the physical realm in which we live in. The world that's being described here is mankind. So we could even translate it this way. For God so loved mankind. Now as I think about that, I think about the fact that there are so many other things that God could have bestowed his love upon. When you look at this universe and all the different scope of it and how it just seems to go on and on and on into infinity, when you think about the stars that are up in heaven, when you think about the very fact that the star that we call the sun that is the center of our world that we live in, how it's 10,000 times larger than the minuscule earth, and you think about the fact with all that great magnificence and infiniteness, God could have shown its love or bestowed its love upon it. 
When you think about the immediate heavens in which we live and you think about the beautiful clouds and you think about the rainbows and you think about the, the lightning and the thunder and the things that occupy the air as far as the beautiful birds and whatnot, God could have bestowed his love upon it. When you think about the very world in which we live in with all its beauty, with this grandeur of the mountains and the beauty of its oceans and, and the beauty of the flowers and the trees. And then you put in there the animal world and, and the wonderful creatures that are upon this earth. But God could have bestowed his love upon them. But instead of that, in spite of it, and through all of it, God sees this creature that he created called Man. He looks at mankind and sees a man who is stumbling in darkness looking for light, a man who needs salvation so very badly. God loved the world so much that he wanted to do something special for it. And so the text goes on and it says that he gave. He gave. I want you to understand and appreciate the fact that God gave here. He didn't bargain with mankind and say, if you do this, then I'll do this. He didn't say, well, if you um, start acting a certain way, then I will follow up with this. No, instead he gave us a free gift. It's something that mankind did not deserve. It's something that mankind hadn't earned in some kind of way. It it was just something that he gave to mankind of his own free will. He gave it to mankind just simply because he loved his creation. He gave it to mankind because he knew mankind needed a way of salvation. And the thing that's so amazing about all this, when I start looking at this verse and I start piecing it together and I see for God so loved the world that he gave, I'm reminded of the fact he did this while we were unworthy, unclean, condemned sinners. Paul in Romans chapter 5 beginning at verse 6 reminds us that God helped us when we couldn't help ourselves. In fact, he goes on and makes mention of the fact that if there is a righteous man, there would be some who would be willing to die for that righteous man. In fact, if someone could find a good man, there would be some that would even die for him. But then verse 8 says, But God commended his love toward us in that While we were yet sinners, he sent Christ to die for us. For God so loved the world, the hateful, mean, sinful, unclean, non-innocent, condemned world, but he still gave his free gift. But then the text goes on, and he tells us what he gave. He gave us his son. For God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son. When you ponder that particular idea, you think about the fact that God, since he is our creator, he could have given us so many other things. 
We deserve to die. We deserve to be condemned because of the sin that we commit. We are separated from God, and God in his loving kindness and his mercy could have come up some other things that he could have given us because uh, he did love us, and he was sorry for the fact that we were so sinful. He could have given us a, a better world to live in. He could have made the greens more green. He could have made the blues more blue. He could have made the things that we see in this world so much more beautiful. There could have been so many other different pleasures he might have gave us here on this life to help us to enjoy life more because once we pass through this life, that's all that there is and there's nothing more because of our sinfulness, because we are dead men walking, that at least while we're here on this earth before we have to spend eternity Somewhere else, we could at least enjoy all the different pleasures and beauties and wonderfulness of this world. He could have gave us that. Or maybe he could have given us some type of supernatural ability that we don't have to help us appreciate the fact that we are powerful creatures. Maybe it's the ability to fly, or maybe it's the ability to live under the water like the sea creatures of the world. Or maybe there's some other things that given us some kind of supernatural strength or power so this world would be something that we could conquer and truly enjoy. Or maybe... He could have just extended our years. If this is all that we have and all that will ever be because of who we are and how we have treated God and how that we can never be in God's presence, he could have just simply extended our years and maybe let us live even longer than Methuselah did. Past that 969 year and maybe live a thousand or two thousand years because, you know, once it's over, once we breathe our last, that would have been the end of it, and then we would have to deal with eternity. God could have done that. But instead, God gave us His only begotten Son. And we need to understand when we say only begotten Son, we're talking about how that God gave a piece of himself. When Jesus Christ left heaven, it's like a part of God left heaven and came down to this earth, and he suffered all the things that mankind could suffer. He went through all the temptations that mankind could go through. He lived as a man in every aspect as we live as men and women. And then, even though he lived a perfect life, he gave himself on that cross to die for each and every one of us. He gave the most special thing that he could give us. He could have given us so many other things. We know that every good and every perfect gift comes from God. So he could have given us many other things, but he gave us the very best that he had. He gave of himself. God literally left heaven and became man, became one of us, became Emmanuel or God with us so that he could be the proper sacrifice for our sins. So the payment could be made. So he could be that big fancy word, the propitiation of our sins. In other words, so he could take our place. It's through Jesus Christ that we find the righteousness of God bestowed upon mankind. But then we come to another part of the verse I'm so thankful for. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And don't miss this word because it's so important. It says, whosoever, that whosoever believeth in him. There are those in the religious world today because they believe the writings of a man by the name of John Calvin that teaches this idea that God has arbitrarily picked certain men to be saved and certain men to be lost. There's not a thing you can do about it. It was chosen before the world ever began that if you're one of the saved ones, you're going to be saved. If you're one of the lost ones, you're going to be lost. If you're one of the saved ones, somehow or another, God's going to illuminate you and cause you to be saved. If you're one of the lost ones, no matter what you do, no matter how hard you pray, no matter how, how hard you do anything, you're going to be lost. But if there's ever a verse that defies Calvinism and that idea that mankind has been predestined to be saved or to be lost, it is found right here in this particular verse when it says those beautiful words, whosoever believeth in him. Whosoever. That means regardless of who you are, regardless of your education, regardless if you're male or female, regardless of your race, regardless of anything, no matter how terrible a sinner you are, no matter what you've done in your life, no matter if you feel worthy enough, God wants to save you. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 reminds us that God is not slack concerning His promises as some men count slackness, but God is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. God wants to save all of us. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4 reminds us how that He wants to see all souls saved, how He wants all to come to a knowledge of the truth. The very idea that somebody would teach that God wants to exclude someone from heaven, that the gospel invitation is not for all, lies in the very fact of God's love and it lies in the very fact of this particular verse that God so loved the world that He gave and whosoever believeth shall be saved. You see, Christianity is a giving religion. It's at the very heart of what Christianity is all about. God so loved the world that He gave His Son. The Son gave His life on the cross. Both God and the Son gave us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gave us the gospel. The gospel gives us the good news of salvation, how that mankind can be saved, and then we give ourselves to God in order to be saved. It is a religion of giving for everyone in fact, it's no wonder Paul tells us what some people refer to as the forgotten beatitude in Acts 20 and verse 35 when he says it's more blessed to give than receive. So when you combine all this together, you discover that God Almighty loved mankind so much that He gave us a gift, and that gift is His Son, Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, and that gift applies to everyone. Who 
whatsoever. There's not an exception to the rule. But the text reminds us that there's something else going on here. Yes, the invitation is to all, but the invitation must be accepted because it goes on and says, whosoever believeth in him. The hymn, of course, that's being talked about is Jesus Christ, believing in Jesus Christ. Now, we need to understand and appreciate the fact that the belief that's being talked about here is not just simply believing that he is the Son of God. That certainly is a part of it. That's the beginning point. That's the basis for our faith. But yet, what is it, James 2 and verse 9 or 19? I can't remember off the top of my head right now that tells us even the devils believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and tremble. In other words, someone can believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, but it won't do them any good. Instead, there has to be something more involved than just simply acknowledging the fact that He is the Son of God. The belief that's talking about when it says, believeth in Him, the in him is emphasizing the fact you need to believe in what Jesus Christ has done. You need to have trust and faith that he died on the cross for your sins. You need to have trust and faith in that when that blood was shed, that blood was shed as for the forgiveness of sins, as Jesus very clearly points out when he's instituting the Lord's Supper, when he says, this is my blood which was shed for the forgiveness of sins. We need to have in trust and faith in Jesus' power to save regardless of who we are. But we also need to have enough faith, enough trust, enough belief, and that's what's being talked about in this verse, that we're willing to accept the invitation. We're willing to do what Christ wants us to do in order to be saved. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 9 reminds us that He is the author of eternal salvation to all those that obey Him. You see, belief is more than just simply mental assent. Believing in Him is putting our trust and faith in Him and also be willing to do what He says to accept the invitation that He has extended to us in these words. But now, we're coming to that part of the verse but oftentimes, when people are quoting their verse, this verse, they kind of trail off at the end here. First part, we love to say, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. We kind of don't even want to talk about the last part of this. But as you look at the last part of this verse, we see something that's so very important because right here is laid out for us the only two possible destinations of mankind. Everyone here today, everyone who has ever lived, everyone who is of accountable age, one day is either going to perish or have everlasting life. There's no in-between. It's one or the other. Every single person who has lived and will live from here on until the Lord returns, every single person of accountable age is either going to perish or have everlasting life. 
Here is the basis why this verse is even here. Why God had to give his gift. Why God had to give his son. Why we need to believe in him. Because there's only two possible outcomes. There's nothing else. In fact, let's start thinking about the last part of this verse. Perish. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. Perishing is an awful, awful thought. And we need to be sure that we understand that the word being used here for perish is not some kind of punishment that happens once and that's the end of it and that we are annihilated or we disappear or we no longer exist. Jesus is very clear in the great judgment scene that we have depicted for us in Matthew chapter 25 when he's talking about those who are on the left, those who are called the goats, those who do not do the will of the Father. In verse 36 he says, they shall depart unto everlasting punishment. The only kind of true judgment that would satisfy God's judgment is a judgment, a punishment that would last forever. And we don't have time to look at all the verses this morning because this is not a lesson on hell. But we know as we go through God's word, we discover that this perishing is a separation from God. And because there's a separation from God, there's going to be loneliness. There's going to be darkness. There's going to be pain that's described like an unquenchable fire. A pain that's described as a lake of fire and brimstone. What an awful, awful thought to spend eternity perishing, to spend eternity separated from our loved ones, but most importantly separated from God Almighty who has given us and protected us and taken care of us as we lived here on this earth. But praise be to God, there's more to this verse. The verse ends, well, the verse begins with God's love and the verse ends with everlasting life. And I'm I'm so thankful for that because when you begin with God's love, if you appreciate and accept God's love, there's going to be everlasting life. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9 tells us that the eye has not seen nor the ear heard. Or, to paraphrase, the mind has not imagined what God has prepared for us in heaven. We've been studying the book of Revelation on Wednesday nights, and we haven't gotten to that part of the text where there are beautiful descriptions of heaven And they're put in terms that we can understand. They're put in symbols that we can understand because we can't fully appreciate what heaven is like. Our eyes just can't behold what it's going to be like. If I would try to describe to you in a way that that truly describes heaven, your ears couldn't comprehend it. Your imagination just can't imagine how wonderful it is. Even when Paul was called up into that third heaven, when he has a a description of the heavenly realm, he says, I'm not allowed to speak about such things. And some people interpret that as saying, no matter how hard I tried to tell you what I saw, you just couldn't simply understand it. 
Because eye has not seen nor ear heard nor the mind imagined what God has prepared for us. A beautiful, wonderful place where there'll be no more pain, where there'll be no more sorrow, there'll be no more tears, there'll be everlasting bliss. There's an old story, I'm sure you've probably heard it before, about a woman, an elderly woman, who discovered that she had a terminal disease and she knew she had just a few weeks to live, so she called her preacher to the hospital and the reason why he, she called him was because she just frankly told him, I want to make some arrangements for my funeral. I want to tell you what I want at my funeral. And of course the preacher, he understood that and, and wanted to help her in any way that he could. And so he got out his notepad and he started jotting some notes and she mentioned some scriptures that she wanted read and she mentioned some songs she wanted the congregation to sing and she had some other little requests and he wrote all that down and um, he said okay I'll make sure that when the time comes that your family knows that this is what you want done and he had a prayer and he got up to leave and as he was walking out the door the lady stopped him and said now wait a minute there's one other thing I just thought of and he said yes what is it and she said when they put me in the casket and I'm there in the casket and friends and family and others come by and see me in the casket, I want to make sure that you have a fork in my right hand. And the preacher kind of looked at her funny and said, why in the world would you want a fork in your right hand? And she says, let me explain. So one of the things I've always enjoyed, especially in my later years, is when the church got together for fellowship meals. And I'd be sitting there, and those kind young people in the church would bring me uh, my meal, and they put it before me, and I would enjoy it. And a little bit later, they'll come by, these young people, and they'll come pick up my plate to throw it away for me. And either a young man or a young lady will say, Now hold on to your fork! And I knew what that meant. That meant that something good was coming. That it was maybe a Dutch chocolate cake or maybe an apple pie but dessert was coming and they wanted to make sure I still had my fork because the best was yet to come. And preacher, I want people when they walk by and they see that earthly shell that used to be me and how that I've departed from this life, I want them to see that fork in my hand and I want them to appreciate the fact that the best is yet to come. This life has so many good things in it. This life has some bad things in it. And I hope that we dwell on the good things and not dwell on the bad things. But one thing we need to always dwell on as we live this life on this earth, and that is if you are a Christian, the best is yet to come. John 3.16 describes it as everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God, the greatest lover, for God so loved the greatest degree, for God so loved the world, the greatest number, for God so loved the world that he gave the greatest action. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, the greatest gift. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, the greatest invitation. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth, the greatest simplicity. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him, the greatest person. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. The greatest deliverance. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. But the greatest difference. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have the greatest certainty. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The greatest possession. If you have a need this morning to become a Christian or have some other need that we can assist you with as far as prayers or encouragement, we certainly hope that you'll come as we stand and sing the invitation song.